brother. Mother. It was they who led me to your door. Landed on the substance. I'm your host, Trevor Aiken. And I'm your other host, Philip Marinello. We're two guys thinking critically about faith, culture, and theology. And today, uh, gonna be another entry in our substantive cinema category. Thanks for uh, checking out our last one, First Reformed. Uh, but today, we have a very special guest with us. Very special. Brett McCracken of currently Gospel Coalition Notoriety. But Brett, why don't you uh, give yourself a little bit of an introduction to our listeners who might not be familiar with you? Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So, um, yeah, I'm Brett McCracken. I am a writer. I'm currently the editor, senior editor for the Gospel Coalition, where I focus on arts and culture content, so things on that you might see on the Gospel Coalition's website related to movies, uh, TV, music, the arts, um, that falls within my domain. So it's kind of a dream job for me um, because I love writing, I love editing, I love the conversation about theology and the arts. So that's kind of been the area or kind of my um, niche as a journalist, as a writer. I'll just give you a quick background. I, I went to Wheaton College for undergrad, started writing film reviews for the student newspaper back then. So this was like uh, early 2000s. So wow. um, I think my I think the first movie review I ever wrote was the movie O with Josh Hartnett. Or the, like All right. Day, <laughs> modern day version of Othello. Um, yeah. forgettable, forgettable movie, but that was the first <laughs> movie review that I ever published for the Wheaton College record. So that's kind of, that's where I got my start. I started writing for Relevant magazine around those yep. early years when I was in college because Relevant was just starting and they needed some content and they didn't pay, but uh, that was fine. <laughs> it was, expo- it was exposure. So I kind of had the benefit of being in in the early days was relevant and they published pretty much any review that I sent them. From there I got connected with Christianity Today. They brought me on as a regular film critic contributor and I wrote for Christianity Today for gosh, probably 10 years as a as just a freelance contributor, but that really I think was a place where I could hone my craft as a critic and and really go deep with theological engagement with films in serious ways that go beyond the curse counting or worldview analysis approaches <laughs> that so often. Curse counting. Which, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> we're, we definitely, uh, that's a hard thing to find, healthy film criticism that is, in a way, given to the church to kind of present yeah. things in that manner that isn't just we should or shouldn't see this movie because it's got this or right. many, this or that amount of like naughty content. Be a weird job description. Right. F word tallier. I know, right? 
but you know, sadly that has, that was the dominant approach for, I mean, most of my childhood, whenever mm-hmm. I would read plugged in or some of those Christian publications that looked at movies, so much of it was about that kind of, um, what's the violence, what's the sex, what's the nudity, what's the, cur- you know, curse count, I which is fine. Those. And, and there's a, there's a place for that. And we can talk about that later, perhaps, but I just wanted to go deeper than that and not, not just dismissing that approach completely, but just, I, I felt like there's more to this conversation. There's more resonance with faith and with theology and, and art and cinema than we often are seeing and exploring. So that's kind of what I've set about to do as a writer and as a critic and I've been fortunate to have opportunities to do that, and I went to grad school at UCLA. I got a master's degree in cinema and media studies, so that was a great experience to just, um, yeah, really focus on film theory and history and from kind of secular perspectives, but bringing my my Christian um, identity to the table as well. And that was a that program is is one of the best critical studies programs anywhere in film. It's where Paul Schrader studied, the director of First Reformed. He went through that program way back in the day. So it was cool to go through that program, and and I feel like I really um, grew as a – I matured as a thinker and as a writer in grad school. And then um, the last couple years, I've been writing more for the Gospel Coalition, and they hired me full-time about a year and a half ago. So that's – that's the journey. Wow. So far. <laughs> it's an awesome journey. So so where in that journey does uh Terrence Malick and the film Tree of Life come in? Let's start yeah, with Terrence Malick. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, I mean I I'm surprised I didn't bring that up in my first go through of my story because he does figure prominently in my journey as a as a thinker and as a writer. I would say Terrence Malick, and this is you know, not overstating it. He's the reason why I am doing what I'm doing in terms wow. of looking at the intersection of faith and theology or faith and theology and the arts. It was the Thin Red Line, his 1998 World War II movie that really convinced me to want to become a film critic, uh, to want to start writing about movies with a specific eye towards where kind of faith and spirituality intersected with, with Hollywood films. I saw the thin red line as a high school sophomore. You guys probably, you know, the theater, it was in Shawnee, the West Glen theater right off 35 for 35. Is that the old, the Glenwood arts theater? No, it's, um, it's off of Renner road. And, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's, I don't think it's called Westland anymore, but anyway, that's, that's beside the point. That's where I, I kind of saw all of my movies growing up. Nice. But I, I remember going to see The Thin Red Line as a high school sophomore, and it was just a transformative movie-going experience for me because it was the first time that I felt like I was in church, kind of, like while I was in the theater. <laughs> You know, that feeling where there's just a feeling of transcendence and I don't know, you can't quite put your finger on it. But if it was the first time where I felt like, wow, this movies have a unique capacity to articulate spiritual longing and, and kind of give visceral expression to that. 
Um, so it, it was just a, a life-changing movie for me. I had never heard of Terrence Malick before that. So Yeah, I was going to ask, did you have any idea what you were getting into when you purchased your ticket <laughs> no, for Thin Red Line? I, I had no idea that it would become kind of a uh, such a big deal for me. But yeah, I, I, I went on to watch his previous two films, uh, Badlands and Days of Heaven. So for those who don't know, Terrence Malick, That's me. he made two films in the 70s. Badlands first in 1972 with Sissy Spacek and Martin Sheen, and then Days of Heaven with Richard Gere in 1978. And both of those films were critical, you know, critically acclaimed, um, award-winning, and it really put Terrence Malick on the map in kind of part of this 1970s, you know, American um, cinematic moment where so many great films were coming out. Now, he disappeared after that. So after Days of Heaven in 1978, he, he kind of famously disappeared from Hollywood and, and was absent for 20 years. No one, to this day, no one knows exactly what he was doing, where he was. I think he lived in France for part of that 20 years. And um, he, was, he has always been a recluse and kind of shy of press. He doesn't do interviews. He doesn't appear you know at film premieres any of that yeah i think there's that one picture of him that is like everywhere and that's all you kind of really have of him (laughs) right there's like five photos that you know are our only glimpse of terrence malick although in recent years he's i think become less um shy perhaps a little bit but anyway yeah so he came back onto the scene just um out of nowhere in the late 90s with the thin red line which was a movie that like seemingly every actor in Hollywood was in. Like if you go back and watch it, it would, it's like who's who of late nineties Hollywood uh, stars, George Clooney and John Travolta and Sean Penn, Nick Nolte. I always forget Adrian Travolta's Brody. in the movie <laughs> whenever I watch yeah, it. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> so anyway, the, we could talk about so many of Terrence Malick's the movies, but we're here to talk about the Tree of Life. So the one I've seen, yay! <laughs> the one you've seen. Have you not seen any of the others, Trevor? I'm I am not a uh, I, I'm not very well versed in uh, film in general. So no, I haven't. I don't think I've seen any of his other other films. So we've we've talked about it on a few of the shows recorded. I think I'm probably responsible for like 90%. 80, 80 plus percent of his film collection and film viewing. <laughs> This is true. Nice. Well, you got your work cut out for you with Malik. There I go, yeah. Yeah. So, Trevor, that's a really good intro background. Actually, yeah, kind of before for- that, so so I remember in the lead-up to Tree of Life, I, I can't remember if it was relevant or Christianity Today, but I was aware of your writing on the Thin Red Line. I think maybe, if I'm getting it right, the uh, Thin Red Line Criterion Collection was announced somewhere around the Tree of Life coming out. And there was like build up because it had won mm-hmm. the Palm Door, and there was a whole lot mm-hmm. of like Terrence Malick's first movie in like almost mm-hmm. uh, ten years again. So right. I was there was a lot of anticipation when I saw it, and I was uh, telling Trevor off air. I f- I forget about this every now and then, but I was in Florida when I saw it at the uh, Tampa Theater. It's an old art house theater, like an old stage that's converted into a movie theater. And the only time in my film going life I've seen 
a big sign posted at the box office of this art house theater where it's pretty much just cinephiles and elderly right. people who are art patrons anyway. Right. But there's a right. big sign saying, if you don't Refund. like the tree of life, your money will not be refunded. <laughs> yeah. Right. I was like, that was wow, what am I getting into here? <laughs> It was that was a famous part of the Tree of Life story was that it set records for walkouts, like mid mid movie walkouts. Which probably around the uh, creation of the cosmos, I would imagine. Yeah, I think it was probably around that point of the movie, which because you're kind of roped in for the first forty minutes, it's still kind of chopped up, but there is still a sense of like, okay, this is a family drama, sort of kind of like I have a. I have a lexicon for this. And then it's like, no, all right, let's don't. go back to the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Right. Let's let's start this story at the beginning. Okay. Yeah. So I don't want to get too far ahead of us. Um, let's start our story. So at the beginning. let's start it. So Trevor, <laughs> yeah. as somebody who, as you admitted on the uh, 2018 meter roundup, you saw probably two movies in the theater all year. That's correct. Wreck-It Ralph and Black Panther. <laughs> two enjoyable <laughs> films in their own right. Yeah. I took my two-year-old to her first film. It was fun. That's fun. So first impressions, like how would you describe it? What were your thoughts as somebody who is Mm -hmm. probably the average type moviegoer, maybe a little bit less, but you're a pretty average film goer. What were your thoughts going into it? So how would I describe the film? Yeah. So imagine, uh, listener, if you would, you want to tell a story about a person's life, but you want to view it through the context of the entire history of the universe. (laughs) Um, And that be the context for their struggle of faith and pain and meaning. That's what the tree of life is, I think. Mm -hmm. It's not bad. I always try to just like, I always try to be as basic as possible because man, it's a, it's a challenging one. I basically say, throw everything you know about like traditional film out like it's not it's not a narrative like it it is poetry it is cinematic poetry that was helpful to me that has themes of like i mean it's in the title but basically it's trying to encapsulate the experiences of life the ups and the downs like it in as much as possible i feel like his goal was trying to encapsulate the entirety of life Mm -hmm. in a film Brett, if you had a summary, what would what would you would you go with? Yeah, I mean, I I usually say like the, the shortest description I give is it's about the birth and death of the universe and the Texas family in between. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's yep. it's both the, the macro and the micro. It's it's yeah. about everything. <laughs> it really is. It's about, about everything. everything. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's a movie about pretentious everything. Pretentious to say that, but it it really is. Like no film I've ever seen has come closest has come closer to capturing everything. Like it's about pain and suffering and joy and aging and time and mm. beauty and death and life and everything in between. It's I think he does an amazing job of capturing these kind of um, ta- like tableau moments, these vignette moments that are sometimes as quick as like a one shot, like a, a mom lifting her wet foot off of wet grass that the sprinklers have. Like there's something about the way he can capture a shot or a moment that like instantly brings to mind resonances of life and existence that so many of us can relate to. 
So, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's not, you know, overstating it to say it's about everything. Yeah. 100%. So I would just say stylistically, the way I describe all of Terrence Malick's films, especially recently, is a kind of cinematic impressionism. So if you know, that is if you know impressionism in painting, like Monet and Van Gogh, et cetera, you know, what that was to painting, Terrence Malick is doing to cinema. He's taking tons of little bits and pieces, you know, flashes of this, flashes of that, brush strokes of this, brush strokes of that. And, you know, up close, it maybe looks incomprehensible and it looks blurry, but taken from the long view, you know, it, it makes beautiful sense and in a way that a more straightforward narrative couldn't capture. So the way that he puts things together out of order and, and kind of and elliptical editing, whatnot, is frustrating because it's so unconventional. It's so different from how we usually process movie images. But I think it creates this kind of cinematic impressionism that's so unique and powerful in a really unique way. Yeah. That is kind of how I experienced it, too, is like, he's just like, it's just these symbols almost. And you can almost read what's happening in the film by like reading your own emotional responses to these symbols in the film. Like this, mm. you see this kid who sees this dog barking and then he's starting to address these ideas of fear like right afterwards. Yeah. And so you can start to think like, oh, like that's... I felt fear. I can relate. Yeah, I felt fear. And then he starts ad- addressing fear. So you, you kind of can see and read where the film's going by almost just being in tune with your own even emotional response to these symbols or, or impressions. Right. I like that term as he's, as he's going through. Yeah. What I love about that, what you just said, is I think the best movies are the ones that that invite the viewer to have to do some work to read into it. And, you know, it's a more active, engaging type of cinema where everyone watches The Tree of Life and probably has a different experience because different moments, different symbols, different scenes kind of capture them and connect with them in different ways. So, you know, for me, someone who grew up in the Midwest, there, there's a whole layer in which that aspect of the film connected with me. Like mm-hmm. the T- Terrence Malick's childhood in Texas in the 50s had similarities to my childhood in Oklahoma and Kansas, you know, in the 80s and 90s, that someone who grew up in, you know, London wouldn't be able to relate to. And yet True. they would, they might relate to the film on a different level and there might be things in it that they, that they see. So it's a masterpiece in that regard because everyone who watches it, I think, can get something out of it and there isn't one interpretation that's the objective final interpretation. Um, and that's the power of images. Images are subjective to some extent. I mean, there's, there's an objective quality to an image because it captures a thing in, in a certain time and place, but there's a subjective quality to it too, which is the symbolic level of what it means. You know, what is a, what is an image of a butterfly at a certain moment in the movie? What does it mean? Well, that's the level at which multiple people can have different ideas. That's true. Which I think is key with what you said with 
I definitely heard about a lot of people that I tried to show it to back in college. Not a fan. I think that's part of it where you said it requires engagement. And if we're no, no offense to blockbusters, there are some blockbusters out there that have things to say. But if you're used to going to be like highly stimulated and highly entertained and to be spoon fed, you're out of shape. Most people don't go to the movies to exercise their mind and their heart and their emotions. They go to like be thrilled for an hour and a half. Or yeah, like it's not the movie you just throw on at the home theater when you're out with your butt scooping around <laughs> or something on a Friday night. Right. I know. I always, whenever I show Terrence Malick movies to people at my house, I always like make a big caveat at the beginning. We are not going to stop this movie for any breaks. There's going to be no <laughs> cell phones. You need to give this movie your full attention <laughs> like you would give a sermon <laughs> in church your full attention. Because... Oh. It's that type of movie. Like it just, it engages you in a much more active rather than passive way, which is hard, as you said, for people who are used to the movies doing it for you and kind of just sitting back and enjoying explosions and whatever fight scenes. So, kind of along that line, you're a professional critic. You've been in the film criticism space for over a decade. How would you address like somebody who's not used to exercising it? Mm-hmm. They see it mm-hmm. and it's atypical narrative structure. They see he's all over the place. It's not not even not linear because Chris Nolan's a pretty mainstream filmmaker, even though he's right. got a lot of high concepts. So they might be a little bit okay with nonlinear, but just impressionistic abstract and they go well that's just pretentious how would you navigate and help somebody discern between pretentious and ambitious yeah i think i would i would start by just challenging them to see movies as an art form which i I don't think a lot of people often do you know we we think of going to um, art museum, like the Nelson Atkins Art Museum in Kansas City, we think of that in a yeah. different nice. vein, a different category than we do thinking about going to an AMC Megaplex. Sure. But I would say, I would just the concessions are like, cheaper at Nelson Atkins. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You know, I would just challenge people, like you know, a film can be an art form just as much as a painting in the Nelson can be. It's just a matter of framing your mindset so that you can go into it that way. And just like you would, you know, look at a painting that was difficult and actually, you know, sit for a while, hopefully, and and make an attempt to understand it. I would hope that we could do that with a film like this that is is more in the vein of a painting and kind of that level of high art than it is. A, you know, Michael Bay Transformers movie. It's just so different from, from that type of cinema. And that's so clearly Malick's intent. Like, he's not trying yeah. to pound his fist and be, like, didactic. He is trying mm-hmm. to evoke a response. And especially, I feel like, with Tree of Life, he is trying to give you enough space to kind of have an experience. There's a real economy yeah. of words in Tree of Life. Shoot, too. I mean, right. the actual, I'd be interested to see what the actual word count was. Is that something totally. that you've kind of looked at in all of your analysis? Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the, the geniuses about a good filmmaker is, is the, the economy of words and showing rather than telling and being able to capture um, something profound just in, you know, a five-second camera movement or shot 
which I feel like Terrence Malick is a master at. Yeah, I mean, it didn't hurt to have Emmanuel Lebeski as well. I mean, those are know, two right? of some yeah. of like the top guys at the top of their form. Who's like that? writer, yeah. director, uh, the photographer. Oh, the yeah. Cinematographer. Oh, nice. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, like the yeah. camera movement and the music do like most of the heavy lifting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he, Malik employs like all of the sensory tools that he, he has at his disposal. Sound and music are huge in his movies, and they, they have been since the beginning, Badlands. Mm-hmm. Like he's, he uses classical music and just music generally in a, in a way that is really unparalleled among filmmakers. And it has its own language and its own level of meaning. Like in The Tree of Life, I, I wrote about this in my most recent article about The Tree of Life, the extended version. But I have a whole section on music and, you know, the way that he frames the movie with these these kind of pieces of, of sacred um, requiem-like pieces. Mm-hmm. So Taver- Taverner's Requiem opens this, the movie and then Berlioz's Requiem ends the film. And so... Yeah, it opens up familiar, with scripture and sacred music. Yeah, that's that's not film, an average blockbuster. That's not, not the average film, no. It, it opens and closes with sacred choral music, orchestral music, that the Latin words of the, the final Berlioz piece that plays in the last 10 minutes of the movie is is literally like Christian liturgy, like, you know, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you know, grant us everlasting peace. So it's it's just like, a, it's, a, it's a layer that, you know, oftentimes we notice in movies like, oh, that music was great, the score was great. But in Malik's work, it, it's actually communicating profound truths that you can't really understand the movie apart from. So that's another level where, like, if you dig into it, you, you like, Google, like, what was that song? Like, what's the context of that song? What do the lyrics mean? You, it unlocks a whole other meaning to the film in a really cool way. It's, it's, so his, his music isn't just background music. It's part of the story itself. Yeah, absolutely. It's not, and that's what I think some people critique Malik's films sometimes as being like just too pretty. Like it's just excessively <laughs> beautiful. Sometimes people say things like, oh, it's just like an extended like perfume ad. Like, <laughs> I, would, I haven't seen his most recent too, but I have heard those criticisms. <laughs> that's hilarious. Right. It, it's just like people prancing around on beaches and in fields at sunset with orchestral music. And I'm just like, it frustrates me because if you do the extra work of finding out what is the actual song that's playing and why, it makes so much more sense. It's not just about something pleasant to listen to or look at. Right. Uh, I kind of wanted to get with the two main themes, but something you said a little ba- oh, a little while ago, kinda, this is just an aside, because since I have you on the phone and as a, a student of Malik, the, the first several times, I, Badlands is probably my least favorite and or the most challenging Malik to me personally. So mm-hmm. it's probably the one I've spent the least time with. But mm-hmm. I've seen it more, or I've thought about it more since the last time I saw Tree of Life and then when I watched it with Trevor. And like mm-hmm. I felt I, I like I felt like Badlands and the vibes bled a lot more through like I got a lot of similarities and overlap like I just got a lot mm-hmm. more Badlands vibes than I ever did and I was just wondering mm-hmm. if you had any thoughts on that and the similar themes in his movies and kind of the overlap and 
just him communicating yeah. his own experience. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I think I think in all of his films, he's exploring this kind of arc of paradise, paradise, and then paradise lost, and then paradise regained. It's kind of this this Eden moment. Like a lot of his films start with this kind of idyllic Eden type environment. The Thin Red Line, for example, like there's this kind of paradise, tropical paradise that bookends mm-hmm. the movie. And then, of course, it goes to like the worst, you know, bloody war experience. And Badlands is similar. It's kind of this um, naive pair of young people that are in this kind of Eden-like um, reality. And then sin enters. And suddenly, suddenly innocence is lost and the beauty of the world is tarnished. And there's this kind of awareness, this, this um, sudden kind of almost like Adam and Eve's awareness of their nakedness in the Bible, I think Malick's films all have moments like that. So in The Tree of Life, when Jack, the, the, the central character, the boy, he goes through this extended sequence of discovering his depravity and sin, and he's, he's all of a sudden aware of death and his own temptations and it's this kind of knowing awareness, this knowledge of good and evil. So the movie is bookended with the tree of life, just like the Bible is, this, this symbol of, of shalom and God's presence and everything as it was meant to be. But then, you know, in the middle of the movie, in between these bookends of the two trees of life, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the awareness of sin, the awareness of our fallenness. And the movie is kind of this, desire to recover that innocence you know at various points in the movie jack says says it explicitly he's like how do i get back there how do i how do i get back to that place of innocence and i think variations on that sentiment are expressed by all of the characters in malik's films from badlands to days of heaven to the thin red line you'll hear that type of voiceover a lot how did how do we get back to to what we had before we lost it? You know, in the thin red line, Jim Caviezel's character is constantly saying things like, you know, where did this come from? This evil, this that, that we see in in this war. You know, how do we get back to that place of innocence? So I could go on and on, but I think that's the big theme that Malik is exploring, and it, it's encapsulated in the Tree of Life. You know, most directly because the name itself tips us off to the fact that you know he's looking back to Eden and what happened and it was sin and it was you know fallenness and and then but eventually there's hope there's hope for restoration and i think all of malik's films end on a note of hope even if they spend most of their time you know in that place of sin and tension and and awareness of depravity so it's it's a really beautiful coherence, I think, when you look at all of Malik's films. They all kind of have that, like the the New World. I mean, it's the the name itself, the New World, kind of hints at this longing, this this longing for paradise found again, for a new start, a fresh start, uh, which we all, I think, are looking for. How do we get back to that paradise that that was lost? So yeah, there's if you Trevor, this is why you need to watch all of Malik's films now because you, you'll see yeah, all these which connections. we can do. 
Yeah, some somehow we'll get time to do that eventually. Well, we have a podcast where we talk about film, we could boom. <laughs> that'll be interesting. Um so I mean, the most obvious kind of through lines that we can grab onto stated at the very beginning of the film are kind of the two options that the two classic options that he gives forth as like the paths through life, like the way of nature that pleases self and the way of grace that pursues like the good of the other. Right. Because again, like you said, it, it's about everything through the lens of a family, which again, yeah. if you're going to try to talk about the, the highest realities and complexities, they have to be told through the life of a human. Like that's the way God designed it. Like right and right. wrong aren't just abstracts, right and wrong are right and wrong because they interact with the, the real. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. guess one thing that we could look at is like the way it's portrayed through the parents. Right, right. So Brad Pitt is the classic, the, the self-made man, and Jessica Chastain is the, the nurturing, loving, giving one. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, yeah. and you see that struggle within Jack. Like he's got his mom and his dad in him, and he's trying to figure out which way to go. Yeah. I don't think the movie lands. Like, I don't think it, I mean, you could, you could, a simplistic reading of the movie would be to say, you know, the mom, you know, the way of grace is, is where the movie lands. But I don't know that it's that simple. I think Jack talks about how, like, always my parents are wrestling inside of me, nature and grace. And I think in the end, we need both in terms of the disciplinarian father. So the the nature is represented by Brad Pitt, and he's, he's kind of this tough, hard father figure. But he also brings something to Jack that his mom doesn't, which is rules and boundaries and um, a sense of uh, a type of love that isn't just a free-for-all. And his mom, you know, interestingly, there's the sequence where his dad goes off on a business trip um, around the world. And during that time is where the boys, it's where Jack descends into sin the most. It's it's when the boys act Mm -hmm. up. It's when it's when his de- depravity journey begins, when his father's gone. And so I think, I think the film yeah. is suggesting that we need kind of both and the, the two interact in a way that brings life. And, and, and Malik maybe is even suggesting that in some archetypical kind of Jungian way, like the, the nuclear family of a father and a mother represent kind of this this system this way that that brings flourishing to to us because we we don't flourish when it's just complete freedom uh, we don't flourish when there's no grace at all either but i also just, i don't think the film is pitting them against each other either like they they intertwine in a in a mutually edifying way um so anyway that that whole part of the film is is there's I'm still learning about it, and I, I don't know that I've landed on what I think Malik is trying to say about the nature and grace thing, but it's interesting. Yeah. One of the things that stood out to me is this role of Jack's brother, which kind of seems mm. to get brought up early and then mm-hmm. almost is, is there as bookends as well. Uh, what, how, how important is that in kind of guiding the, the film's I don't know, crisis and resolution, if you could call it those things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. His, the brother character is interesting. You know, the first line of the film is brother, mother, it was they that led me to your door. So it's kind of Sean Penn saying those words. So Jack is reflecting on his, 
journey of faith. I think I think that's meant to be a prayer. He's he's kind of talking mm-hmm. to God and saying, "It was yeah. my mother and my brother that led me back to you. That that kind of led me to recover my faith." And so you can see easily how the mother character played that role. But I think it's fascinating to look at the film in terms of the brother question. And you know, obviously. The brother dies, and so there's this kind of launching this journey of grief that I think his brother is the cause of when his brother dies. I think for both his mom and and for Jack, it leads them to that question that plagues so many people, which is the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. Why why would such a bad thing happen to such a good boy? Like, how could God allow this? And and that's why the book of Job figures so prominently in the film, because that's, of course, that's the question that Job asks, you know, why, why God, why do you allow these things? And so I think the, the brother dying at, at a young age, I think he was 18 or something, launches Jack on this journey of maybe losing his faith for a while and, and questioning God, but then um, maybe seeing his mother keep her faith in spite of this grief in spite of losing her son and so the mother at the end of the film her last words are i give him to you i give you my son there's this sense of her she's able to like come to terms with this like god i don't know why you took him but i'm giving him to you i'm releasing him to you and i'm still worshiping you you know her posture in the final scene of the movie is worship she's got her hands lifted that the music you hear is, is worship and i think from Jack's perspective, watching his mom go through that grief and emerge still in a place of faith and trust in God's goodness is for him a crucial thing. So interestingly, and I, I go into this in more depth in my, um, my recent article on the tree of life, but the character of his brother, I think, and I don't like I don't like talking about Christ figures usually in movies because because I think that's a lot of people like to read Christ into everything. Everything, yeah. I think it's overdone in in Christian film criticism, and you really won't see me do this very often. But I actually think that Malik kind of, in some sense, sees his brother's character as evoking Christ. If you watch the Mm. film closely. There's shots of his brother that, like, the movie is talking about light, and the bro- the brother is seen holding a lamp, and with the light of the world, and and then his name is R.L. Oh yeah, I was going back over your article. I did. I hadn't even considered that at all. R.L. Yeah, the, his his name is R.L., which you know maybe means resurrection and life. Like, I don't know. I I looked. I did research into like what Malik's brother's name actually was, and it wasn't R.L. So he came up with that name for some reason. No, Malik being Malik, it wasn't just a random name. So anyway, anyway, I think there's something going on with that character that is meant to kind of evoke Christ. And then some people have read the mom character as a sort of Mary figure. But um, yeah, I don't know about that. But it's, um, yeah, it's, that's how I, I see the mom and the brother kind of playing a role in, in Jack's journey. Yeah, if so, then you would have brother and mother at the beginning of the film in a Catholic kind of way, Jesus and Mary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, some people, I think, see the film as Catholic um, for re- for that reason. But um, I, I don't. I, I think it's Malik himself is not Catholic, and 
I think the movie is more of a a Protestant vision of, of faith. And, and I feel like it's hard to deny, like, you can't say that, again, it's not polemic. It's not trying to, like, be like, here are my positions, like, here are no, the propositions, yeah. here's my, my systematic truth. theology, yeah. like, here's right, here are no. my, like, theological propositions. Again, it is, it's a film that is trying to evoke thoughts and feelings and meanings, but... There's a lot of films, like you said, there's a lot of uh, film critics out there that try to impress like Jesus and the gospel and various things into movies right. where it's, at, at, at in a very nice way, it's a stretch. It's taking the Emmaus road yeah. to Hollywood. Yeah. But this totally. is, it's, it's absolutely made for that. I can't say, because I mean, again, because of the nature of Malik, it's hard to pin down exactly what the authorial intent, so to speak, is, but like... In the tree of life, especially, it's those. It's undeniable. Right. right. Well, he. Yeah. I mean, everything in the movie is just soaking with biblical <laughs> references and allusions, and everything from snakes that like slither by the mom's feet, mm-hmm. and when there's like words about evil and sin, and yeah, there's just so much of that throughout the film, and yeah, the title itself, the music, every everything just tips us off that. This is a Christian piece of art. This is a piece of sacred Christian liturgy in a cinematic form. That's not to say that a non-Christian can't watch it and get a lot out of it and connect with it. But I think there is, you can't say that this movie is like a Buddhist film or like. That's true. Absolutely. Which for me, it's it's so incredible to see somebody on the level of Malik. We're going to do our best not to try to like, just dunk on quote unquote like Christian movies. But like the fact <laughs> of the matter is, is for the very, very most part, they are not done with any sort of high level of excellence for the very most part. Right. Well, and I don't know if when, when people go and set out to make a Christian film, if you uh, set out that, to make a Christian in that industry film, that like, yeah, it's not they're a, they're not necessarily trying to make an art piece so much as a statement right. or you know something that those is, are polemic. Those are exactly yeah. Like here's true. my position, and I'm my goal is at the end to like, which is also in the title of the movie three yeah, times to manipulate your emotions enough to that like you agree. Right. Yeah. Oh, I mean, we could talk all day about the whole Christian film problem <laughs> and, and conversation. You know, I you think arguably. Arguably, first performed is a Christian film, you know, Paul Schrader's film, like, and and yet, like, first performed and The Tree of Life are so different. <laughs> they could not and made be by very different di- men too. They're very different men. So I, I I think that there's no one kind of category or genre of Christian cinema, Christian films, as, as much as like we associate the the term Christian movie with like um, God's Not Dead or fireproof or something like that i think that <laughs> yeah. we, should, we yeah. should broaden that category to think about the types of films that like malik is making and and others well so my original point with that um like malik is such a strong filmmaker and this is such a uh like you said a a a worship film and like a a god word film if you will like it's uh yeah, yeah. i forgot the word you said um liturgical liturgical yeah I think back to uh, Roger Ebert's writing on it, and before right. he passed away, somebody like him, whose life was film and film criticism, calling it like as somebody who was 
nominally Catholic and lapsed and had his own issues that it, how it stopped him mm-hmm. basically like it was he felt like a form of prayer and right. not like watching a film like that will change you but like watching a film like that will set your set your mind yeah. and your heart it, it will put your it will like point you towards the ultimate questions like you said it's yeah. it's about everything right. yeah i think it's a great film actually for seekers so like i think we have to be careful with like treating art in utilitarian in a way where it's like we're using art to kind of evangelize or whatever but i do think movies can be uniquely powerful conversation starters with non-believers with with people who are spiritually wandering and looking for answers and maybe sensitive to the transcendent even if they wouldn't call it that and i think a film like the tree of life which a secular atheist non-believing person would maybe be interested in seeing because it's Terrence Malick and it's Brad Pitt and it's a beautiful award-winning film. But yeah, like you can't watch that film and, and be left with no nothing in your soul stirred or at least, you know, some questions about life and God and suffering and all of that pricked a little bit in your in your mind. And that is an amazing thing that I don't think God's Not Dead is going to do you know i don't i don't think a lot of like la new york hipsters are going to rush out to see god's not dead with their christian friends and have conversations about it we've we've talked about it before kind of offhandedly but i think the biggest problem with that which is kind of ironic you have a man like paul schrader whose career in a lot of ways is impressive but when you look at his positions and his character you're like Mm -hmm, he might mm -hmm. not be the guy you would look to for spiritual advice but right, in right. First Reformed, his goal was to honestly deal with hard things in the yeah. world, the transcendental, like in an honest way, yeah. as much as possible and yeah. not in a teaching way. Right. And in a way that is accessible to skeptics, you know, you, I think someone who watches The Tree of Life, who has questions about God and who struggles with the problem of evil and the problem of suffering, like they they watch that movie and they feel understood and they feel like, you know, Malik gets it. Like, this is a real problem. And, you know, just like Sean Penn's character, Jack, the character of Jack is having a faith crisis and trying to recover his faith. Like, that's the journey of so many people in this world. So to, I, I, I love that. And I wish we had more films like that that took seriously the, the human dilemmas that we have with with um, questioning God and faith and and yet not being completely closed off to the transcendent and the realities of spirituality. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say, like taking something seriously and genuinely and not trying to give prepackaged Sunday school answers to people who Mm. already agree with you. Something like Mm -hmm. you said, I, I saw the first God's Not Dead. I'm not necessarily planning on watching two and three, but like somebody that had hard questions is not going to mm-hmm. come to that and feel like they're mm-hmm. taken seriously, like they're mm-hmm. painted in broad yeah. strokes yeah. as the bad guy that gets defeated by right. faith at the end. Like that's not a way to genuinely interact with deep, important themes. Mm. Right. Well, and the Bible itself, you know, takes it seriously. So the book of Job, like it, it takes seriously these hard questions and, you know, Ecclesiastes, like it's, it's right there in the Bible. And I feel like, we haven't sufficiently availed ourselves 
of those biblical resources in our filmmaking and our art making as Christians. Because if we would just, you know, make an amazing Ecclesiastes movie, we would be able to connect with so many people because that's the experience of life for so many people. But instead, I think... And would you say that's kind of maybe kind of what he was going for with the last two films? I'm, I'm familiar with him, but I haven't seen them yet. Yeah, I think his last two films, Night of Cups and Song to Song, are are just like directly evoking biblical wisdom literature. So Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. So the very title, Song to Song, is I think a reference to Song of Songs, the biblical book. And it's, yeah, so I wrote an article for Christianity Today about that, about that film and Song of Solomon. But yeah, I think I think Malik, just like the Tree of Life draws upon Job, I think a lot of his films really do look to the Bible as inspiration just in in ways that we haven't seen done in in film before. So that's why it's hard for us to register it sometimes. But I wish we had more examples. Just the fact that they're challenging. Like you said, some people walk out or some people who aren't used to it, they just shut it down and throw it out as pretentious. Like he doesn't he doesn't make it easy because life isn't yeah. easy. Like again, he's dealing with like the most high metaphysical like questions that people have. Right. Right. He, he's a, he's a filmmaker who respects his audience in terms of, you know, meeting them in their, in their own um, wandering. So the, the character of Jack Sean Penn's character literally is wandering in the desert <laughs> In, mm-hmm. in the film. And I think, he, you know, the, the Tree of Life is a great film for people who feel like that, who feel like they're kind of wandering in a spiritual desert and um, trying to make sense of it. So, yeah, I mean, for people who are in that place, who are open-minded, I think Malik's films have a lot to offer. Well, I think that that covers a lot of the big themes. One of the things I wanted to ask you while we're still kind of circling some of these things is what you said the most recent uh, version of the film you watched was the extended cut that was roughly 50 mm-hmm. minutes longer. Wow. What, um, yeah. What, yeah, a good old was like 310, 320. <laughs> what uh, what do you think that Trevor added? Blake. I don't what, know if I was... want to watch that long. Episode. <laughs> 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 I, need, I need more hours of my day. Right. I know. It's a commitment for sure. But yeah, I mean, I, I loved it. I think it adds so much to... The movie, I think it fills out a lot of the characters and there's there's new dimensions to some of the characters that come through with the extended version and I mean, Sean Penn's like grown up Jack is a lot more of the focus if I understand. Is that correct? Um there's there's definitely like a new like probably five minute sequence in early in the film that shows more of his character, but a lot of the additional footage is just kind of added periodically throughout the film. So the um, the whole sequence of Jack's like childhood rebellion and his like fall coming to terms with his sin, that is really expanded. Like it's like Malik really wanted to hammer that home and and show the audience that um, experience of rebellion and being kicked out of the garden, so to speak. So, yeah, the extended version, I think, adds a lot of that material. Um, there's, there's like a tornado sequence that is another kind of Job reference where a tornado hits their town, and it's another opportunity for Jack and, you know, his brothers to kind of ponder, you know. Like the whirlwind. And, 
Interesting. The whirlwind, yeah, like, God, why did you bring this destruction? You know, just like they ponder, like, why did you let our friend die, the little boy who dies in the pool? So there's there's more of that kind of pondering, that Job pondering to God, why did you do this? Why did you let this happen? It's worth watching. It's a, it's definitely a commitment. So I if, if I were showing the film to someone for the first time, I would probably actually go with the extended version. I think it... I think it's a more complete vision that is, that underscores the Christian nature of the movie in ways that are even more unmistakable than than the theatrical version was. Yeah, I'm so grateful like we live in the day we live in where a movie can come out like that and incredible and then it can be like, well, this is my actual full complete vision that there's no way a studio would let me release into theaters. You think people walked out to like the uh, two hour, 10 minute one, like <laughs> nobody's staying for that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that th- they would make much money if they took the theatrical version to theater or took the extended version to theaters. Maybe they would in, you know, New York and LA with cinephile audiences, but your average film goer probably doesn't have much of a threshold for <laughs> three hours of Malik at his most, most Maliky. <laughs> that is, and that's kind of what I was going to ask you about too. So where would you put this, if you want to be so crudely as to say like ranking, but like, where does this fit in Malik's body of work? What is this? Is this like yeah. Pinnacle Peak Malik? Because he still has stuff to say afterward. And he's, right. like you said, the history. I, one of the big things that was impressive to me was like after the new world, it's like a whole new wave of Malik. Like he doubled his career in like yeah. a quarter right. of the time, he, his output. I know. He became prolific suddenly. It was like the Tree of Life <laughs> un- unlocked a creative energy that he hadn't had in a while. Which I can see, you know, I think The Tree of Life was a film that he, it was like his passion project. He he worked on it. It had, it had been in kind of germination for 30 years or something like in development. So it had been something he had been wanting to make for a long time. He won the top prize at the Cannes Film Festival, which is the highest achievement for a prestige filmmaker, you know, to get. So it was kind of a peak moment for him. It was it was a personal film for him, like it was his life story, you know, juxtaposed with the universe, you know. <laughs> so it for Malik, I think it it really is his magnum opus. Now that's not to say he doesn't have another one in him. Like I hope he does, but Agreed. his last three his last three films have definitely not been up to that level at all of the Tree of Life. I think they're great and. I love them, but I would love if Terrence Malick directed a commercial for whatever deodorant. <laughs> I would probably love that. <laughs> yeah, I think it ranks for sure as his best film. Um, for me, I go like you. I go back and forth with the Thin Red Line or the Tree of Life as my favorite Malick film. Obviously, the Thin Red Line has a very personal meaning for me as kind of that turning point, coming of age moment as a film goer, as a, as a film lover. But The Tree of Life, as a film, I don't, I, I don't know that there's a better one that I could point to like, of any film. No, I, and, a- absolutely. Know. I agree. Whenever the question comes up like, oh, like, what's your favorite movie or what are like your top five movies of all time? Like, it's kind of an impossible question, but like, I almost like can't deny Tree of Life a place on it because it is so yeah. singular. Yeah. I mean, the only other movie that people typically 
put it in conversation with is 2001, which is an yeah. incredible movie, but it's so it's so sterile and so like absent of yeah. the deep things that are like part and parcel of like every frame of the tree of life. So they're right. both grasping at larger things, but coming from yeah. two completely different perspectives. Yeah, there's. I mean, that's a really interesting comparison, the 2001 Tree of Life comparison. And there's there's interesting um, trivia with the fact that D- uh, Douglas Turnbull, who did special effects on mm-hmm. um, on the 2001 with Kubrick, he was brought out of retirement by Malick to do some of the visual effects for the Tree of Life. So. I think Malik kind of had 2001 in mind a little bit in terms of the cinematic scope of what he wanted the Tree of Life to be. But yeah, I agree. I think they're very different films. There's different energy to them, but both of them have that kind of grandiose like sense of bigger things. Yeah, completely. I recently saw the um, the IMAX 60 millimeter re-release of 2001, and it was great. But man, even watching tree of life in trevor's home theater it's mm. because of the meaning mm. it's tra- it's it is a transcendent film yeah right i know oh what i wouldn't give for a 70 millimeter like imax release of the tree of life that would be absolutely epic <laughs> some someone needs to fund that there you go be so great. chris nolan's next <clears throat> project yeah you heard it here first folks to get it started <laughs> right so <laughs> speaking of the speaking of the scope of the film i was just kind of thinking about when we're talking about this film and we've already said it he does something that not only does no f- film really do but would be almost impossible to pull off to to really see the universe from yeah when a to z big bane to heat death in a sense and why do that? Like, in a sense, like why <laughs> you would think that like, when you talk about matters of faith and pain and suffering, couldn't have he done just a movie, you know, if in the life of the people without this, you know, like just on the back. O'Briens without the beginning and the yeah. end of the world. And I mean, you know, evolutionary history as well. So uh, what does that add? to it to to the grandioseness of the film that would be absent without it yeah i mean i think it adds a lot i think uh, for one thing it's a really important part of the job story so the fact that the film begins with the um, job 38 verse on screen where were you when i laid the foundations of the earth when the morning stars sang together and the sons of god shouted for joy that I mean, Malik visualizes that idea in the, the creation sequence. So, at just at the point where the mom is kind of suffering from her son's death, and she's probing God, she's asking these questions that Job asked. It's like God's response of "Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth?" It's like Malik shows that. Like he doesn't. You don't hear Here's God say that, but you see. You see him laying the foundations of the earth. Like you mm-hmm. see that Job 38 moment when the morning stars sing together. And, and I think that's what that sequence is about. It's, it's about seeing that big picture of like, I know your problems are, you know, real and they seem like everything to your world, but let's pull back. Let's, let's see this big picture. Like I created all this. I'm in control. I'm sovereign. I've, I've um, watched this whole narrative of creation, evolution, whatever you want to call it, unfold. And it ends with you. You know, it, the sequence wow. ends with you and your children, you giving birth to these sons. So I, you know, I've 
been there. I've been watching you. So I think narratively, in terms of the emotional place that Malik wants to go with this film, like that sequence is absolutely central. So it's not just about showiness and and kind of doing a 2001 Kubrick type, you know, crazy imagery thing. It's about it's a theological meaning to it. He's trying to put the viewer in that Job-like position of this conversation with God. And in the film, God's voice, God's perspective is represented with the forming of the universe, yeah. laying the foundations. Yeah, it's like it's almost as if to really understand meaning in life, which you're going to want like when you encounter the pain of life, to yeah. get the broadest context possible. Yeah. I mean, literally, it is the broadest context that is humanly understandable you know the boundaries of time itself that's the kind of context you'll need transcendental context to really get at meaning in life to really get at purpose and uh, be able to find that and cope through suffering and so it yeah it it Mm -hmm. is it's almost you're right it takes you there and and god Mm -hmm. takes job there for Mm -hmm. you know kind of similar reasons of of trust me like find meaning in me like that kind of thing yeah And what I love about the movie, and the more you watch it, the more you pick up on these things, but there's all these connections between, like, what you see in the creation sequence and, like, Mm -hmm. things that show up later in the film. So Mm -hmm. everything from, like, the boys, you know, when they're playing in a field, like, one of them says, look, it's a dinosaur bone or lizards or, like, different, even, like, there's weird shots where the boys spill water on a watercolor painting and... It like looks like it looks like the nebula of the stars forming, you know, so there's there's these visual connections that Malik is making between the creation kind of macro level and this micro level of this family in Texas in the 50s. And I think he's wanting to communicate. It's the same. It's like the same God who did this crazy cosmic stuff is the God who cares about this family and cares about this little boy and his journey and, and his questions. And I think that's, it's such a beautiful, I think, articulation of that nature yeah. of God, of being kind of the author of the universe and this this scary kind of sublime hugeness to God and the intimacy of the God who is relational and who pursues us and who, um, yeah, who cares about the, the goings on of our life. So that that's another Another thing from the film that I think is just so deeply theological and rich. When you uh, when you pointed out that that part about the watercolor painting that gets the water mm. dropped on it and and almost has like this creative mirroring of of the nebula, mm. the thought that came to my mind in that in that moment is image bearer. And I, mm, I don't yeah. know that that's necessarily what Malik was trying to communicate there, but just that idea mm. of there's a special yeah, place totally. for these people in, in God's creation, totally. God's plan, that they do stand at the center of the film for a reason. Well, there's, I mean, the fact that R.L., who, you know, may or may not, may or may not be a Christ figure, but he's a musician, you know, he's playing, he's an, throughout the film, he's seen with a guitar, he's an artist, he's a, a really artistic little boy. And yeah, I think the image bearer thing comes through, like, there's a beautiful scene where R.L. and the father uh, have a duet where, like, yeah. I think the dad is playing That's on one of my favorite and, scenes in the movie. Yeah. It's such a great scene, but to me, that does, it, it brings to mind this idea of, like, 
you know, we are created in God's image and he's a creator and we're creators. And just like the father plays a symphony, so to speak, with this world he's created, like we're invited to duet with him. You know, we're, we have a creative role to play as well. And I think that that's what that scene means to me. Mm, that's very moving. Like I'm getting moved right now just yeah, I got thinking back through that scene. Like we bring our own experience to that. So like our relationships right. with fathers or father figures or authority figures um, totally. or like mentors yeah. in the faith, these things all take on various nuances where you can have literally like everyone who sees this movie take a little bit yeah. of something different because he is telling the truth as much as possible in those suggestive, evocative ways, not going A, right. B, C. Here's my right. systematic theology. Yeah. yeah. The movie can be, in a sense, about you as the viewer mm -hmm. in a way that mm -hmm. no other movie really can. You almost look in an yeah. emotional mirror in the symbols yeah. to, to feel like your relationship with your parents and you know, yeah. your father figure. And that kind of stuff. Which for all the people, so like, I get if it's not your cup of tea, but to say that it's, to dismiss it as either, oh, it's pretentious or it's just full of himself or it's, uh, it's a bunch of crap. Mm -hmm. It is just baffling. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's what makes me sad about the people who walk out during the creation scenes, because I feel like if you get past that sequence, the film kind of settles into a more approachable register when it, you know just, and it comes alive so much yeah and like i i had my parents watch it in, in 2011 when <laughs> it came out fun. and you know they're baby boomers so they grew up in the 50s probably very similar time that malik was a kid and i don't think my parents would have gone to see the film or even have the tolerance to like make it through the first 20 minutes unless there's you know unless i was wasn't their son forcing them to see it <laughs> but but once they saw it they they both were just like wow that that film really did capture like in an uncanny way like what it was like to grow up at, at that time and little mannerisms of the, the mother and the father and the way they interacted with the kids you know really felt true so yeah, I think it's I think there's something for everyone to to resonate with, and that's a mark of great art art that is so personal and true, which this film is from Alec. I think he he was telling a true story of his childhood as he remembered it, and whenever you do that, whenever you like say something that's just utterly true in your own kind of microcosm, like it's bound to resonate with other people, and and that's why. That's why there's, I think the best art is the most personal art because it, in a weird, ironic way that when you set out to, to do something universal, you often fail. Like it doesn't resonate universally. So when you set out to do something personal and you do it well and you do it true, like you actually have a, you know, a universal resonance. And I think that's what's happening with, with this film. With Malik. Yeah. It, it's almost like. Uh, art in in a testimonial kind of form where a self-story connects narratively more to people than just uh, a list of facts or yeah. a to-do list or that things like that yeah. to tell something that's real and personal and and true to, to life experience well mm -hmm. other people can fill in the blanks in their own lives and connect with that which i thought was yeah. really interesting i i think somebody probably even pointed it out to me that the, the groupings of Terrence Malick's films, broadly speaking, you can kind of look at them as almost A and B sides. Just take 
the two movies at a time, like looking at Tree of Life and mm-hmm. To the Wonder together, yeah. from what little we know about Terrence Malick, like To the Wonder is like very specifically, personally, autobiographical yeah. to himself, where the Tree of Life is, yeah. these are like memories and feelings and like things that were true. Like To the Wonder is yeah. like, this was my life and the mistakes I made and the pain that I caused and the pain that I experienced and me trying to find meaning and redemption like through my actual life. So I thought the tree of life into the wonder is probably, I think the most interesting Mm -hmm. Terrence Malick like pairing. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, I think it's so accurate to call to the wonder a B side to, to the tree of life. It's definitely of a piece thematically and, um, just personally for him it's like his childhood and his adult years yeah i mean his latter two films as well night of cups and song to song are also pretty biographical but not to the extent that to the to the wonder and tree of life are so yeah someone someone should write a book about Malik's <laughs> late career late career autobiographical period maybe that will be me i don't know i uh hear uh somebody we know who may or may not be on this podcast <laughs> is uh working on that i would have to i would have to secure an interview with terrence malik and that might be a feat that is unmanageable we'll see <laughs> you could try out for one of his you could get an agent you're out over there you could get an agent and try to do a walk-on for one of his next uh oh, gosh. Pr- projects that would, that would be stalking or something that would be weird <laughs> That'd be deep cover level investigative journalism. Well, then I, I definitely know, don't recommend that on this public program. <laughs> right. Hey, so there is a scene that, that I was kind of struggling with or like thinking through what does this mean for a while, probably maybe too long. In the evolutionary sequence, there's this part where this CGI dinosaur comes mm-hmm. up and this other CGI dinosaur kind of sees it and, and immediately you get this sense of danger, right? Of the unknown, mm-hmm. of the strange, like approaching. Mm-hmm. But it's allowed. It's like, okay, we'll see what happens. And mm-hmm. the other one definitely is able to exert power in the situation right. and like pins the the other dinosaur and gets it to a point where next move could kill and yeah. then decides to walk off. And then scene, you know, Terrence Malick. And so there's so much symbol there. It's almost wrong to even say what is going on here, but but what, right. you know, I just wonder what you guys felt in that scene. What was that connecting for you? The dinosaur scene is notorious in the tree. I mean, I'll give you my non-professional scholar, and then let Brett bring it home here on that. Yeah, one. But I mean, it. like for me with so many things where cuz people know that like I'm usually that I've one other good I had one good friend in Florida and now in Kansas I have one good friend here that are like actually cinephiles and like that are so like people ask me questions about movies sometimes yeah, and like read. for like the deep and important ones like I think sometimes the answer is I don't know like I don't think that it, it's like a x equals y kind of deal sure. where it's in nature in the world there is the weak and there is strong and again yeah. depending on what nature your experience grace. yeah na- i mean you yeah. could say nature grace the the dinosaur like dinosaurs bring you out of it or at least challenging you because if you're like invested yeah. in the movie and like in for the experience you're like huh this isn't what I expected, but okay, I'm in. But there's that layer of removal. So like when the kids are running around in packs, when Brad Pitt's in Hong Kong or whatever, they're aggressors. So like yeah. it's just a little bit yeah. different because like these are dinosaurs. We don't have context for that. So it's like 
people can be cruel and people can misuse their power or people can choose to not. Just kind of, yeah, I felt like it was more of a presentation of struggle and power versus like trying to make any sort of and statement. how those themes are almost existent outside of the human condition or how or? yeah how they are essential to nature period exactly not just human struggle and <clears throat> conflict <clears throat> those are essential to the to the natural order creation yeah yeah no, that's good i mean i don't have anything brilliant really about that if anything, I think it falls in the category of what I was saying earlier, kind of resonances between the um, the evolution creation sequence and then what happens later in the film. Like, there's a scene later in the film that I think is kind of the parallel scene to the, the two dinosaurs where Jack is, um, there's a wounded boy who's like, has a burn scar. Do you remember that character mm-hmm. in the film? His, mm-hmm. Yes. He's like he's one of the neighborhood boys and he's been injured. So he's he's weak just like the injured dinosaur and I think he's he would be naturally kind of a outcast or something that the stronger boys would take advantage of, but there's this scene at the end that's kind of Jack's it's like the capstone to Jack's redemption where he just puts a tender hand around this boy's shoulder. And it's like this unexpected embrace of this uh, wounded boy. So when I see that scene, I, I think, oh, that's that's kind of the parallel. That's hearkening back to that interchange between the dinosaurs where it, you know, everything in nature, everything in nature would say, you know, the strong overpower the weak. And that's as simple as that. But then the the reality of grace in the world is that we can actually reach out and comfort and care for the weak. So there's this kind of Christ-like touch between the two boys that is is, is powerful and it, that feels like hearkening back to the dinosaur scene. But maybe not. Maybe I'm, maybe that's a stretch. But I, I have I've seen this film way too people. many times when I started making parallels <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what good art does. Yeah. It's true. It's true. So if you'll bear with me, this might be a little, this might be part and parcel with we can have final thoughts here with this old school Christian film analysis, but I'm sure if if my dad was listening to this, he he would be thinking, okay, we we're talking about this as a Christian film, but how is it a Christian film if it's got a portrayal of evolution in it and things like right. that? And what would right. you say to someone who's at, who's struggling with that question, honestly? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a legitimate question. I mean, I, I think. There are plenty of Christians in the world who have different opinions on on evolution, and some. True. Um, I think some Christians are kind of theistic evolutionists who believe that God orchestrated was the initial cause, but and then somehow kind of orchestrated the unfolding of evolution and worked through it to bring about His aims. So I would just say that as one thing that there's. There's lots of faithful Christians who believe that, but also I would say like the film isn't about that. Like it's it's not it's not a film trying to prove evolution. There's no it's not like Malik is setting out to like celebrate Darwin or something in the movie. Right. He's not. It's more it's more of a narrative device that he he wants to showcase the the macro and and the the history of the universe from. <laughs> birth to death, and the way that he does that is through this condensed kind of narr- narrative arc of stars and the planet and plants forming and cells forming and dinosaurs. I love the and, cellular bit. That's, ah, oh, I love that. It's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's unmistakable that there's 
a divine artistry creator element. The the music tips us off to that, the cinematic liturgy that it feels like. Like it's it's not a film that's celebrating a naturalistic big bang. It's it's well, celebrating the, the a, entire stage is set with where were you when I laid the foundations right, of the earth is right. 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 The the epigraph to the film tips us off that this is about God and his his interaction with us as his creation. Yeah. It's almost like allowing the, the narrative themes and the discourse to set the tone of what it's what it's trying to do in a impressionistic way rather than like any one single data point. Right. Well, one of the things we typically do here as we're uh, rounding this out on substantive cinema, I don't <laughs> think it'll be quite as necessary on this one as we're all pretty clear. Instead of maybe would you recommend this movie, why would you recommend this movie, and maybe how for Tree of Life, why would you recommend this movie, and maybe how would you recommend this movie, especially to a, uh, we'll say, a, a non-cinephile? Yeah. I mean, we've talked about it already in, in the sense of, like, you need to, and the how of it. Um, turn your phone off to look at it (laughs) yeah turn your phone off turn the volume up like give it your full attention treat it like an art piece it is it is a piece of art it it deserves your attention and i think malik's films in general are experiential in in the sense that you you don't want to overanalyze it like as you go along (laughs) you you kind of just want it to happen to you you want what he's created to just happen in front of you like visually orally like just in all of your senses and so just yeah just be open like have a posture of openness and let the movie happen to you and then maybe on another viewing or just you know let it let it simmer let it percolate in your mind before you rest rest to judgment and I, I say that about every film. I think as viewers, we're often way too quick to like think that we've summarized a film like in the five minutes after we leave a theater. Like we think we've got it, and that's just not that. That's not the way that a good film operates. It it should linger with us. It should provoke thought and analysis that sometimes takes a while to develop. So I think that's especially true of the Tree of Life. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. Um, I think it's, like I've written about, I think it's the best Christian film of all time. I think it's a masterpiece of liturgical filmmaking um, from start to finish. It's, to me, a worship experience. And I think for Christian viewers especially who are open-minded, I think it can be a model and an inspiration for what a new standard for raising the bar for what we can hope for and strive for with making movies that give glory to God and express kind of the beauty of theology and explore interesting questions. So, yeah, it's a film I hope, you know, young Christian filmmakers watch. And I, I know I've shown it at Biola University where I've taught. Yes, yes, Um, yes. So I, yeah, the next generation of Christian filmmakers, like I'm so glad they have the tree of life to look to and I hope that it, you know there's another Terrence Malick somewhere in college right now who's gonna make the next Tree of Life. So that's that's my hope. Yeah, that's perfect. Well, maybe they're uh, reading some some great articles in Christianity today, or on the Gospel Coalition, or maybe listening to uh, <laughs> even this this review and and getting inspired. Yeah. So um, yeah, maybe. 
Well, Brett, we just wanted to thank you so much for your time. Uh, we've appreciated a lot. This is We're a movie. really honored. Absolutely. This is a movie that I love and I know you love. And like you're somebody that I've looked to for a long time as like appreciating what you have to say and your your viewpoint on things and your ability to articulate them. So thank you so much for your time here tonight. Yeah, thank you guys. It's uh, It was a pleasure. It's always a pleasure for me to talk about this film and Malik, so you don't have to twist my arm to if you want to do <laughs> well, it actually, well maybe we can have you on again uh next time you got a book <laughs> coming out or something we'd love to have you back on sometime yeah yeah awesome okay thanks guys thanks so much brett thanks okay you guys have a good night stay warm in Kansas thanks. city <laughs> yeah we'll try <laughs> bye See bye so thanks again to brett mccracken senior editor at the Gospel Coalition for Arts and Culture. Great honor to have him on. Absolutely, man. That was great. We'll be linking to his social media and that most recent article on Tarek Smalik's film in the show notes. So and even sure probably a, a handful of them. He, he's written a few. Maybe yeah. we can, depending on how much space we have, put links yeah, to several of them. Throw some stuff in there to give you guys some reading material. And, and links for The Tree of Life. If you yeah. guys want to check it out, I, I know Tree of Life is a movie that um, the majority of folks probably haven't seen. And hopefully if this half interview, half review has spurred your interest, which we hope it did. Inner review. Uh, yikes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> if this uh, episode... Uh, Substantive Cinema has piqued your interest in Tree of Life, which we hope it has. Um, we'll have some links to uh, check it out on Amazon and iTunes as well there. And also in the show notes, you can find the links to our social media pages on Facebook and Twitter. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Substance Pod, and you can email us at thesubstancepod at gmail.com. And that is covered by our Substance Guarantee which is Trevor will Trevor guarantees that he will read every email that comes in and I guarantee that I might. You can also hit us up on that phone line 913-703-3888 which you are the phone cellular type <laughs> which uh last night did you listen to that voicemail that we got? Creepy. So uh pretty sure one of our non-listeners accidentally sent us a very strange voicemail. If that was a coded message by one of your listeners, please tweet at us so that we actually know what you're saying. But, please uh, let us know so we can sleep at night again. <laughs> that was so creepy. I got that at like 11:45. Yeah, it was man, it was pretty awkward. But hey, if one of you guys sent that, then thanks for interacting. Question. Uh, no thanks from Philip though. Yeah, that's well. Yeah, but thank you for listening to uh, this fun episode about the tree of life. And give us uh, if you enjoyed it, scroll down, give us that five star rating, and leave a review. Thanks so much, guys. We are looking forward to uh, seeing you guys next time. Release the Kraken!